Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Reverb. I'm Calvin Pollock, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Alex Helberg. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Today, we are thrilled and honored to be joined via Skype by the independent journalist, commentator, and digital activist, Benjamin Dixon. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Dixon is the founder and editor-in-chief of Progressive Army, co-founder of the Revitalized The North Star, and host of the daily podcast and YouTube show, The Benjamin Dixon Show. Most recently, you, I guess, made virality on Twitter with a tweet about Democratic presidential candidate and former NYC mayor Michael Bloomberg. Your tweet, as some of our listeners may have seen it, linked to audio of Bloomberg at the Aspen Institute in 2015, defending his stop and frisk policy as mayor of New York. This was a policy which disproportionately targeted poor people and minorities for unwarranted police searches. You can just take the description of Xerox it and pass it out to all the cops. They are male minorities, 15 to 21. That's true in New York, it's true in virtually every city. And that's where the real time is. You've got to get the guns out of the hands of the people that get killed. So you've got to, if you want to spend the money, put a lot of cops in the street, put those cops where the crime is, which means in minority neighborhoods. So this is one of the unintended consequences is People say, oh my God, you are arresting kids for marijuana that are all minorities. Yes, that's true. Why? Because we put all the cops in the minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. And the way you get the guns out of the kids' hands is uh, to throw them against the wall and frisk So, Ben. Why did you believe that that clip was so important for more people to hear? And what have you seen in terms of the effects of its publication on the broader conversation about Bloomberg? Yeah, I think it's important, one, because up until that point, we had only read what he said, right? The original YouTube audio, I, there was two versions, and I'm not really sure which one I pulled from, but one of them only had, the, the biggest one had only 70,000 views. Right. And it had it'd been on the internet for five years. And, and so for me, I said, finally, after I, because originally I wasn't going to do anything more than share it on my podcast, but then I realized, well, he's a presidential candidate for one, but then for two, if we do a couple of best practices here, people can consume this content faster and it could go further. And so what I did was I took it, I cleaned it up so people could hear it a little more. I threw a transcript in there and I did a slideshow and compressed it all into a video and then just shared, 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 shared. And the reason I tell you that part of the story is because the information that can change our world is out there already. Right. But it's just somewhere you have to pay attention. You have to look for it. You have to get lucky like I did. In my case, I got lucky and I stumbled onto it with a few good Google searches. And then the main thing is to make sure that it's consumable so people can digest it. Because at first it was just a picture of Bloomberg and some really hard to understand audio. Right. And I think there were just some best practices to make it more consumable. And, and when we did that, it matched up his voice with the seriousness of what he was saying. Right. So you can kind of dismiss it when it's in written format because you don't feel the impact. Right. And then you can dismiss it when it's in really garbled audio and, you know, it's a hard to sit through an entire hour presentation. But when you cut it down precisely into the smallest, compactable, deliverable format and the most consumable format, then people can really get the significance of what he was saying versus just the words that came out of his mouth. 
That's so interesting. I, I have two follow-ups on that. The first was that I know that when this was released, you got some pushback from the mainstream media saying, we don't know where this podcaster got that audio, like kind of <laughs> yeah. act, acting as though you stole the audio or, or, or right. did something untoward. I think there yeah. was a, there, wasn't there, there was a CNN commentator, I think, who was like a former financial reporter for Bloomberg Media who like openly criticized yep. you on the show or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So she was former, a former, a, a former correspondent for Bloomberg TV. And I think it was like Christy Alessi. And I guess I should know her name by now. And she did try to make it seem like, you know, I got this under, you know, actually I should thank her because she, she made it seem like I did more than I did. Right. Right. <laughs> she made it seem like I had this clandestine meeting with somebody who had this audio and, and it was passed to me by some, you know, really what they're trying to imply is some Russian operative who passed it to me. No, right, right. I Googled three times and found that audio on YouTube and then I cleaned it up and put it out. There you go. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes it makes it makes your endeavor sound pretty cool. But yeah. <laughs> but I mean, wasn't but, yeah. but wasn't there an element of cover up here where like Bloomberg did Bloomberg did get like an yeah. a, a video of this uh, scrubbed from the Internet beforehand? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the second part. So in my route to finding the video, I stumbled onto Dana Loesch from the NRA, um, but she was doing a video for Blaze TV five years ago about Michael Bloomberg saying some racist stuff that was an affront to black men's Second Amendment right. right. So, you know, there's a conservative spin to it. And so that's fine. You know, it's the information is the information. You just have to be able to take the information in and understand someone's bias and where they're coming from, but it's still information. So I took the information in. They did not have audio, nor did they have video. They just had some of the transcript, a partial transcript. So I Googled the transcript. Easy, right? This is what you do in, in fifth grade Googling. Um, right. You put in the transcript. Here comes the Aspen Times article that said exactly what you just mentioned. The fact that Bloomberg asked the Aspen Institute to block this audio. And I mean, no, no, I'm sorry, the video. And of course, because a video, this is, this is why the video that I just shared two hours before we got on this podcast today, this is why the video is going so much more viral, right? Because it's one thing to hear it with garbled up language, but to see him say it crystal clear, and well, it wasn't HD, but it's definitely clear enough for people to see it, that it's his face, his words. You can see the expression. You can see, right. You can really get communicated into your brain exactly what he's trying to convey through video. And so, um, but that's why he wanted it blocked because he understood the power of the video uh, medium. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and just in the interest of getting, getting that some more coverage, uh, at least on this show, could you talk a little bit more about the yeah. content of that, that, that video yeah. that you just shared? The video that we just shared, it discusses, it's him, it's, a, it's an 18 second clip. We're at 421,000 views in less than three hours. Amazing. That's madness, right? And here's why it's so compelling. He's staring at you directly in the eye. He's looking directly into the camera and he's saying that there is a cohort of Latino and black men, black men and Latino men between the ages of 16 and 25. Right. So it's the same exact description from the Aspen Institute video. And he said they have no discernible skills. They don't know how to get a job and they don't know how to behave when they do get jobs. This cohort of black and Latino males aged, let's say, 16 to 25 that don't have jobs, don't have any prospects, don't know how to find jobs, don't know uh, that they, what their skill sets are, don't know how to behave in the workplace where but they let, have to work collaboratively. Me, I, let me, but the, the, you can see him with confidence 
with the confidence of his convictions, look at you in the eye and say that I believe that young black and Latino men between the ages of 16 and 25 don't know how to behave. You juxtapose that with the audio from the Aspen Institute and you see why this video is going at 421,000 listens and views in two hours. Wow. So I guess just taking a step back, you know, your publication of this clip, of both of these clips, I think is responding to a real need in the larger media ecosystem to cover Bloomberg more critically. So right. I guess just in the interest of doing that, what are some other problematic aspects of Bloomberg's record that you think is not getting enough attention? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. It's the same thing that you see in these videos. So a lot of people grab hold to the racist component of the videos. No doubt. It's a problem. It, right. is, it is disgusting and it shows his worldview. But underneath it, or right next to it, right, side by side, is his governing philosophy. Michael sure. Bloomberg's governing philosophy is if I think something is a problem, I use the force of the government to go in and fix it through force instead of using the power of the government to fix it through changing the conditions that led to it, wow. right? The conditions that lead to violence. We, there's too much evidence that shows where there's economic deprivation, you're going to have violence, you're going to have crime. But instead of using the government to rectify the underlying condition of, of violence, which too often is poverty, what does he do? He uses the force of government to send in the stormtroopers to create a police state in black and brown communities. That is a governing philosophy. Now, you juxtapose that to his soda tax, the video that we shared of him talking about the soda tax, where he's basically is saying that the best way that we can control the behavior of obese people and no, and I'm sorry, correct myself, of poor people specifically, the way that we control the behavior of poor people specifically is by taxing them to regulate their behavior. Now, that shows you his philosophy of governance which is to use the power of the government to come in through force and not address the underlying conditions, which often are tied to poverty, but use the force to, in, to create um, a paternalistic system that's extremely punitive. Yeah, no, I think that that really, I really like that dichotomy that you set up there between using the power of government to attack conditions that are creating a problem rather than just trying yeah. to, I mean, what his approach seems to indicate is like, well, it's these people's personal responsibility to, to yeah. you know, they, they, they're just not acting right because they don't know how. Uh, I mean, it definitely connects up with the, with the audio that you were talking about earlier. And one of the reasons that I think we're, we're so interested in, in the way that this is coming to light right now is just because it, I mean, it's kind of reflective in some ways of what seems to be a larger disjunction between two different sides of the Democratic Party that are mm. com becoming way more clear in in this primary cycle than probably, yeah. probably. I mean, I don't want to be ahistorical, but like a lot of other points in in American presidential electoral history. So I guess maybe if you could if you could speak to that a little bit more too. What is the ascendancy of a Michael Bloomberg candidacy tell us about, especially the way that he's been coming into it, pumping a bunch of money into advertising dollars in Super yeah. Tuesday states, basically buying his way onto the debate stage by, uh, you know, the DNC changing the rules for, you know, mm -hmm. for who gets allowed on the debate stage. In your mind, what does this say about the conditions of like the American left at this at this particular moment? What is what does Bloomberg represent in that context? Bloomberg. OK, so let's start here. Bloomberg represents the most clear example of class warfare being waged against the working class. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there's a better example of our lifetime than an oligarch to come down from his throne of opulence and to 
use his pocket change to buy up all the best talent that he could possibly find, right. all of the commercial ad spots, the ads spots, the, the Facebook. And you can't play a game of words with friends without fucking seeing an advertisement from Michael <laughs> right. Bloomberg. Right. Right. Yeah. So he just decided one day between he and Jeff Bezos, there's an article that says that Jeff Bezos tried to convince them to run for president. So between the two of them, they laugh, ha, 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 which one of us can use our pocket change and buy America? Bloomberg said, well, I've got the New York. I've been mayor of New York. I think I can do it. And so he steps down from his throne of opulence and purchases everything, everybody. While we were over in, in Iowa and we were in New Hampshire, you know, shit posting, he was over in Alabama and Texas you know, spending $350 million on ad buys. Right. So he's been able to circumvent the normal democratic process, small D as well as big D democratic process. And now he's purchased his way into the election as well as the, the debates. But by circumventing the normal process, what he's been able to avoid is the last several months, almost a year now of us debating his deeply held beliefs and philosophies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Love or hate Pete Buttigieg, you know exactly what the hell he stands for today because he goes back and forth, right? But you know what Amy Klobuchar stands for. You know what Elizabeth Warren stands for. You know what Bernie stands for. Everyone in Biden, you know, you know what he stands for. Basically nothing. Um, so <laughs> or you, you don't know what he stands for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. You don't understand what he stands on the table. for. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Everybody's <laughs> beliefs are on the table and have been debated except right. for whose? Michael Bloomberg. And that's because he's been able to circumvent the small D as well as the big D democratic process and by virtue, sheer virtue of his wealth. And the irony of it is, is that $350 million taking over the Democratic Party. And you know what he's susceptible to? A podcaster with a whole bunch of friends on social media. Yes. We collectively have put an, an enormous dent in his campaign. Right. No, and it's and it's really been a very mind blowing experience following this primary and just the way that Bloomberg has come on so suddenly, despite the fact that, as far as I can tell, like none of the policies that he has instituted throughout his record or the policies that he's proposing are particularly popular, like with with Democratic voters or Republican voters or really anyone. And it kind of makes you feel crazy that this guy is polling like you know, a front yeah. a front runner in many of in many of these states. So what does this say, I guess, about the media that it took someone like, you know, like an independent podcaster to get them to actually take this guy seriously in the sense of scrutinizing his record? Right. It's um, it's a model, right? It's a model that happens over and over and over again. When your industry becomes so I'm going to say it in like corporate speak, right? And right, we could talk right. about other formats later. But in corporate speak, when your industry gets so big and bloated, it takes a long time for you to move and shift and innovate, right? And when you're when you have been so entrenched in power or in proximity to power, you value access, right? And so you'll pass up on a story or you won't look for a story because you want to maintain access. Right. And so we down here at the bottom, right? I think podcasting is to journalism what the working class is to the elite, right? Yeah, right? We're down here at the bottom. But guess what's down here at the bottom? The best questions that you're going to get asked anywhere, right? The best analyses, you're going to find that in podcasters. Things that really take a deep dive, right? Things that try to get to the core of the fundamental and the essential questions at hand. You're going to get that 
on podcasts, you will not get that in mainstream media because right. that's not what mainstream media is there for. Mainstream media is there to the service of the powerful. And we saw that with uh, Bloomberg's former correspondent attacking me on CNN. So, and so how about generally in terms of covering this Democratic primary, what have you made of the performance of the corporate media? I mean, this is kind of a, a layup question, but. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean. Yeah, no. Go ahead. Both in terms of like cable news and then also newspapers and, and the kind of mainstream online media. I'm thinking of like BuzzFeed, Slate, The Daily Beast, and then debate moderation as well. I mean, what, what have you made of the way that the media is framing uh, these conflicts in the Democratic oh Party? Oh, man. It is the proximity to power that makes them protect their comfort, right? They don't want to get, they want to be able to go, I'm going the long way around. They want to be able to go to the press correspondence dinner, right? They want to be able to go there and have sensible, peaceable, you know, familiar times when everything was okay and we could get drunk with Republicans <laughs> and have orgies upstairs and then go back to work. That's, that's what they miss. That's what they want. And if that means being complicit to power and the things that are necessary to protect that power, then you have journalists who know how to do journalism. Let's be real. Like what I did was some searching. Yeah. Like you have actual journalists that are surround the the media empire that know how to do it. But because they value their check and they value their access, some of them can't afford to do it and they're not afforded the opportunity to do it. And so we see that we see that going through everything that happens and happening in the primaries. Right. Yeah. In the primaries, you have the framing of the questions at the debates all have right wing leaning assumptions. Right. right? Yeah. I mean, at yes. one point, can we challenge the assumption? One of the first things that you learn in debate 101 in middle school is you do not have to accept the premise that's given to you. That's right. Right. Yep. And they and, and, and so the the media has embedded and inculcated the entire world manufactured consent to make us believe that the framework from which we should analyze everything is from a right wing perspective. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you brought that. That is one of the central tenets what we talk about on on this show and and in the things that we teach in our classrooms mm. too. Is you know, yeah, framework makes the game work. <laughs> you can either accept the premise or you can question the question. And uh, right, and, right. And I think that's you know that that's kind of what you need to do. Um, I think what we're getting at here. I'm really glad that you that you're continually you know bringing this back to an analysis of you know who who profits off of right. the the framing of you know certain candidates or certain policies being framed in certain ways. I mean, I think that this is something that's, uh, I mean, it's it's kind of been something that's bugging me, I think Calvin too, just about the way that both, both online pundits as well as people in academia, I mean, this is just kind of from being on Twitter a lot, but people, you know, kind of, as Calvin was saying, you start to feel crazy after a little while because some people will say like, oh, you're just being a conspiracy theorist or, you know, mm -hmm. you are yeah. you're uh, you know, you're just dredging all this stuff. You're you're being overly negative for no good reason. Right. And I think that it's 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 difficult to be someone who's, you know, who is just running a podcast where, <laughs> you know, you don't have the, the glitz and glamour of, you know, CNN or uh, or MSNBC to, to add a sort of like visual legitimacy to what you're doing. Um, Right. Um, but I, I mean, I take your point and I really I, I think it's a good one that that, you know, this is the place where all the good questions are being asked is, you know, kind <laughs> on of in, podcast. Yeah. Yeah. On podcasts and independent media. Um, yeah. And in large part, I mean, I think I think we're not right now. It feels like we're not really ready to have a larger scale conversation about the role that like of like material power and really money plays in. Oh, man. Uh, it plays in just what gets 
out there. Uh, you know, we we have these kind of assumptions in Western liberal democracies about, you know, well, the best ideas are the ones that win the day. Those are the ones <laughs> that, you know, eventually see the light and come to come to pass because of the because of the nature of the fact that they're good ideas. Um, right. But yeah, and here's a here's a trick about that. Right. So I don't know if we have time for that in this episode, um, but I, but we can speak on it a little bit. I hope sure. it's because, you know, the, the lie of meritocracy. There is yes. no meritocracy in our in our world. The best ideas don't go to the top. The best ideas are at the bottom. The most yes. talented people are at the bottom. The people that we're passing up on the street, right? People who are home, they, somebody who's homeless probably has the solution to climate change. And we just abort it. Like you're worried about aborting babies in the womb. You're aborting grown ass people who have con contributions to society that they can lead to actually help us out. But right. that's because we believe in the lie of meritocracy where somebody who is really, really excellent is going to rise to the top. And because they're at the top, that means they're really, really excellent. When in fact, it's a matter of they inherited $10 billion. And now, of course, they can make something look fascinating and, and, and impressive because all they had to spend was like 0.1% percent of their wealth to do so. And and Bloomberg's governing philosophy almost re reflects that, right? I mean, he he wants to police and imprison the social problems and, right. and you know, anyone at the bottom who is, you know, responding to a material condition. Uh, he doesn't right. want to deal with the, the fundamental conditions, but instead, you know, continue smothering people who are already oppressed. Right. And here's the thing. And here's what we're ultimately saying. Like, you know, uh, so my timeline may seem radical. Right. To some people, it seems radical. Every right. now and then I have to catch myself. I'm like, that's a little edgy there, Ben. You might want to bring it back just a little bit here. But it's not when you consider the material conditions of people in the real world. Right. What I'm saying is a gift. What I'm saying is kind. I'm trying to tell you that we cannot have Michael Bloomberg as the nominee because that would strip away the hope of all of these millions of people at the bottom right. who have been trying and hoping and praying that they could make something better about their material condition through the electoral process, right? But you're going to strip that away from people who are already desperate living on the edge? Like, if you blow, if you sneeze, if one of these people sneezes and they make a single simple mistake, then they go from having a home to being evicted, to living in their car, to yep. losing something at their job. They couldn't show up. They're, they're smelly at their job, so they can't stay on their job. And then they get into this spiral of hopelessness that tears them down like a damn black hole. And it all happened because we are constantly living on the edge down here, right? Working class people are living on the damn edge all the time. But guess what happens as a, res a result of that? The most ingenuity that you're going to ever find, the most talent that you're ever going to find, right. the people with the solutions. The reason I was able to cut through the noise was because for six years, I've said this exact same message over and over and over and over and over again. Yep. I didn't have to change anything when I started talking about Michael Bloomberg. What I'm saying to you right now is not something that I scripted for Michael Bloomberg. It's the fact that this is my core message that I've been saying. And Michael Bloomberg was actually stupid enough to try to run for president and it <laughs> matched up with me. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And like, I know that's I know that sounds crazy, but the fact that this video found me and and I'm the guy who's good enough to run point on this because I got his number. You're not going to you are not going to run an oligarch and tell working class people like myself that we're going to vote for this guy. And so to answer to, the longest way to answer your question is what I'm doing. And this is what it is. Right. That what Michael Bloomberg represents is not only racism, but it's a governing philosophy where it's going to push working class people a bridge too far. Where we are used to living on the edge, he represents the thing that'll make us say, hell no, 
We will burn this down, even if that only means through electoral politics, right? We will refuse our vote. We're not going to get, most of us are not going to get in the street and do any type of physical violent protesting, but we have every bit of authority and the right to refuse our vote. And that will burn down the Democratic Party better than any protest in the street. Just real quick, uh, as we wrap up here, Ben, I, I wanted to ask you about something that you mentioned very briefly at the beginning of our conversation that I think was really important. And that was about the kind of best practices that you have followed in getting these stories about Bloomberg to, to go viral and to reach more people and to yeah. affect the mainstream conversation. So can you just yeah. go back over those a little bit and tell us what you've learned through the experience about how to get people to pay attention to stuff like this? So I think the most important thing is understanding your question. Like, what is it? What is your core message? What is it that you're here to say? There might be multiple messages. But one of the things that I'm here to say is that the working class can only take so much. That's yep. one of my core messages that I've been saying for the longest. Like we're living on the edge. We're used to living on the edge. But if you push us, I don't know that we would respond in a way that you can predict. And this is not to be a threat. This is to say, listen, we actually kind of like the system. We don't mind, you know, we don't mind your opulence if you allow us to just have some subsistence. Like, can we, can we go to a doctor? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's really a thing that can work, but you're pushing us too close to the edge and you're going to knock us over past the event horizon. And it, and it could very well go down in a way that none of us can predict. And so I'm like, I'm just trying to say, hey, guys, one of my core messages is that we need to create a society where everyone can have enough instead of a society of have and have nots. Now, once you understand your core message, at least one of your core messages you understand the importance. This is where we're going to the media aspect. Right. The importance of communicating succinctly, quickly, and in the most effective way to paint the picture in their head that you're trying to convey, right? That is a very challenging thing. Hmm. And I think Twitter, funny enough, is the perfect platform to force you to do that. Right. Because you only have, uh, what are we at now, 280 characters? 280, yeah, 280. Right, you're at 280 characters and that's still not enough because we're wordy people, right? <laughs> Humans are wordy people. And Twitter is forcing you because you don't, you're not going to get a, a thread to go viral. You're going to get a tweet to go viral. Right. So the best practices means reducing your words, reducing your video, reducing your audio down to the core message, right? What is the one thing that this piece of content is trying to say? Nothing more, nothing less. Package it up, get it in the highest resolution that you can if it's a picture, get it in the best audio resolution as you can if it's audio, make sure that it's HD, if it, you know, just do all the very simple things, make sure you have it um, in a square format if you can, if it's going to be a wide format, that's fine, just make sure that it's actually wide, you know, just right. basic things. If there's a transcript, if there's not a transcript, take the extra mile to get the transcript. Yes. I believe this video would only have had half as many views if we did not have the subtitles on it, right? Absolutely. So do all of those practical things. Make sure you don't have a static picture if you're listening to audio because people need to see motion, even if it's a very, very subtle motion. So all of these things, you know, go into reducing. You're, you're putting in all the best practices that you possibly have into the shortest message that you could possibly send mm -hmm. and make sure you use the exact words that are necessary to trigger the images in someone else's mind. Ultimately, the goal is that when we say something, it conjures a picture in the person's head that's precisely what you are seeing in your head. That's the goal.
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think your continuing, you know, coverage of Bloomberg kind of also speaks to the fact that, you know, when you, especially in this election cycle, I mean, yeah, we like people who hadn't heard of you before probably now know of, you know, Ben Dixon as this was the guy who, you know, has been like doing some grassroots journalistic reporting on Bloomberg. Yeah. So now you have kind of that ethos as well to step up yeah. and, you know, and release more content that that is, you know, people so- people are listening now. Yeah. So you prime your audience. You work your audience. You have a relationship with your audience, right? You guys focus on rhetoric. I th- I've not read much of anything in your field, but I imagine that there is something about the ability to communicate better when you have a relationship and you have a connection with a person. Oh yeah, that's right? that's that's everything, <laughs> basically okay. in, in, in rhetoric. That's kind of like the the big the big bottom line. So yeah, ethos, okay. So yeah. there you go. Right, I just pulled it out the air. Their book. I'm sure what Abraham Lincoln like is like books go to show you that all your novel ideas have been thought of before. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. I love that. That's one of my favorite quotes. And so out of my head, I just pull out this thing that the better rapport that you have with your audience, the easier they can hear what you're saying right away. They'll know what you're saying right away. It's like a good author. A good author who has several books can now in their fifth book, write allude to something in the first book. Mm-hmm. And that illusion creates an, old, an entire imagery in a person's mind. So it's no longer even about the words that are on the paper so much as the, what's conjured up in their minds. And yeah. you can't really do that if you're a shitty person on Twitter who's <laughs> always attacking your followers, right? Right, right. If you are kind and you build rapport, people can see you for who you are and they will fill in the blanks and you can say less. You can say less and they will see more. Wow. Yeah. I think that's a that's a beautiful beautiful note to leave it on. We usually like to kind of end with a with a little practical uptake for our for our listeners for how to how to contravene some of the uh, mass media manipulation mm. strategies uh, that are going on. And I think that that is there's no better summation of it than that. So uh, we you. want we want to say one more time, Ben Dixon. Thank you so much for being with us. My absolute pleasure. Before we before we sign off, is there anything specific that you would like to plug? Just keep doing the work, folks. Whatever it is that you're doing, do the work. Make sure you know your fundamental question what is what what are you here trying to do fellas what are you here trying to do with your phd there's something that you're trying to do and the best place for you to possibly be is when the thing that you're put here to say gives you an opportunity to say it that's all i would say that's that's an amazing plug thank you ben yeah thank you so much Ben. really appreciate it our show today was produced and edited by alex helberg and calvin pollock Reverb's co-producers at large are Sophie Wadzak and Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.